In this episode of the Engineering Commons podcast, we talk about a detail that mechanical designers have to deal with, the selection of threaded fasteners. And while this seems like an easy task, we'll discover that there are many considerations to be evaluated when selecting nuts and bolts. The Engineering Commons podcast explores challenges encountered by engineers, regardless of their field or industry. Join mechanical engineer Jeff, civil engineer Adam, and electrical engineers Brian and Carmen as they discuss issues of interest to today's engineering professional. This is episode 66, Nuts and Bolts, October 16th, 2014. So Carmen, have you ever been told that you've got a screw loose? Not a day goes by where I don't hear it at least once. <laughs> <sighs> Just a little crazy? Not not got all your wits about you sometimes? Yeah, pretty much. I have a tendency to make up words, which doesn't help anything either. So oh, I'll, yeah. I'll throw out a, a, an informal report and I'll say, you know, it's uh, the output just kind of, you know, blows up a little bit. And they're like, what does blows up mean? And then I have to explain it and <laughs> everyone shakes their head and has a good laugh. Maybe at my expense, but not the way I see it. <laughs> And, and are you in one of those modes right now where you just feel like you're doing the same thing over and over and that kind of makes you a little crazy too? Oh, you wouldn't believe. If it, was, if it wasn't classified, I would talk about it openly on air, but <laughs> yes. Cool. Yeah. Trying to make everybody happy is uh, probably, I'm sure many of our listeners know, is easier said than done. Right. Well, you know, for uh, many of us, Assembling furniture from Ikea may be the only interaction we have with uh, threaded fasteners, but for other engineers, threaded fasteners are an integral part of their design and manufacturing activities. And so we thought we'd talk in this episode about, you know, one of those areas of small detail that uh, may have a large influence on on the success of a product, and that is threaded fasteners. Uh, we tend to think that uh, picking out a screw or picking out a bolt should be a very easy thing to do. And yet, it can be quite a complicated process. And so, uh, this evening, we'll we'll give it a go at trying to give sort of a general overview of the area of threaded fasteners. Okay. We're just going to read right from the machinist's handbook. <laughs> well, <laughs> the the machinery's handbook uh, is a very good reference for this stuff. I have had a copy for many years. Yeah, and, I think uh, I'll start. Table one, row one, column one. Uh, well, it's <laughs> threads. <laughs> it is a uh, the the so I I think they're up to episode or, or not episode they're up to edition twenty nine. Wow. I I'm still using the twenty fourth edition of the Machinery's Handbook. Screws really changed that much. Uh, well, I don't know what you know they. They've all got fiber optic. <laughs> they add stuff. My edition has two thousand five hundred forty three pages. Jeez. And so it's a squat little book. It's it's I don't know what is it like eight inches tall by five inches wide, something like that, maybe a little bigger. But um, so what I, what I see online is that the, uh, I, I mean, I do love this as a reference. It's great for, for threaded parts and for gearing and for uh, bending and, and chains and just all kinds of stuff when you're doing mechanical design. Um, now what that, what I've heard that they've done is they tried to put more and more material in there and they made the pages thinner and thinner and so it got to the point where you basically couldn't read the page because you were looking through to the page on the other side. Hmm. So I've heard good that the 24th edition, the one I've got, seems to be the last one that people agree was was in pretty good shape. 
And online, there's some reports that the newest version, they've done some things to um, improve that, made the paper a little thicker and a little easier to read. So, um, In PDF form? Well, I don't know. Maybe it is available in PDF form, but I would hate to try to read through this in PDF form because I constantly have my, my fingers stuck into three or four pages at, you know, locations at once, flipping back and forth to uh, check things. So. Yeah. So one thing I, I never liked about online books, but that's a whole nother discussion. <laughs> well, that's a million dollar idea for somebody. Uh, how to make <laughs> it so you can stick your fingers into multiple pages of, P- of a PDF. <laughs> well, we, I mean, we may get there some point where, where you've got a blank book, you know, just blank pages in there and you turn it on and all of a sudden the words show up on the pages. So that would be I'm, pretty sweet. Almost like a Kindle. Well, I'm sorry. That you can't is- stick your fingers in a Kindle. <laughs> like some kind of paper thin e ink type deal. Yeah, someday. <laughs> All right, we got to go off air with this so we can patent it. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, so now I know that uh, for my world of mechanical design, fasteners are important, but we really didn't cover it at all in school. I mean, it was like you have to know something about fasteners, and but we never really, at least in my schooling, never spent any time on it. What about you, Adam? In, uh, as a civil engineer, uh, was there any time spent on uh, fasteners and bolts uh, uh, as part of building bridges, that kind of thing? Uh, we talked about it a little bit in um, some statics and dynamics classes about you know, threads and, and the physics of a thread. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, in some of the steel design courses, uh, we did talk a little bit about um, bolts and rivets and welding and comparing how you... Uh, you know, figure out the strength of one of those connections and how they affect the the strength of the member you're you're bolting to. Mm-hmm. Because to put a bolt in, you have to put a hole in it, and that's uh, you, know, you obviously don't have the full member there anymore, right? Um, but it was real, real high level, and at that point, I had pretty much decided I was never going to design a bridge. So. <laughs> <laughs> sort of zoned out, huh? Y- yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, now I'm assuming that uh, Brian and Carmen, not much time was spent in your electrical engineering background on bolts and nuts and threaded fasteners, that kind of thing. Uh, not a whole lot. Yeah, you would you would be correct. I got a little exposure on my first co-op as I was building up fixtures, you know, finally understood, uh, you know, 430 seconds and all that jazz, different screw sizes. Well, a little bit. I probably forgot most of it now, so this would be a good refresher, but... My big experience has been in the pre-sorted bag that comes with my furniture. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, so there's there's a whole range of uh, threaded fasteners that we can use for for uh, putting things together, and uh, that's kind of the reason to to use use a fastener is the whole idea that you want to assemble it and disassemble it. If you're not if you're not permanently assembling so, or if you are, are permanently assembling something, there are a whole bunch of other uh, means you might go about to uh, to put things together. If you've got uh, parts that can be welded, you can weld them together. And so welding is, is your melting, your joining material and the material you're putting together at the same time. Uh, there's soldering, uh, which those of you who are electrical engineers are familiar with, in which case you're just melting the solder. You're not melting the other part. You may warm it up. You're not melting it. Uh, there's brazing. Uh, there's uh, mechanical joining, riveting, swaging, or you may even decide that you've got multiple parts and you want to cast them together. And so you may do, do a unified casting. And so you no longer have these, these, uh, dissimilar parts or disparate parts. Uh, you create a single join part. 
Now, without joining, without uh, journeying too far into the Wikipedia page and learning for myself, sure. uh, <laughs> could you give me a qualified distinction between welding and brazing? Uh, not welding, uh, soldering and brazing? Right. So, so in welding, you know, when, um, so for instance, so the welding, I understand the, uh, the, the soldering, they, they both use a dissimilar metal or, a, an intermediate metal to join. No, that, that's, that's wrong. I always thought you talk. <laughs> well, so, so in soldering, you're not, um, you know, when you're melting, when you're joining the two wires together, let's say, or a wire and component, you're not actually melting the wire or the component you're melting the solder which flows around the the uh yes. the two components so that's soldering whereas in welding you're actually that's why you need you know the bright you know the 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 bright lights and all the energy and the the mask and everything because you're creating a lot of energy right there because you're actually if you're welding steel or aluminum you're actually melting the steel or aluminum and having that join in with the with the uh, the weld material the, the stick you know you're you're getting in there yeah. Well, actually, the stick is creating the, the, the joint. You're, the welding is melting the material to cause it to, to move together. But also the stick is generally the same material or matched to the material that you're trying to join, correct? Uh, generally so, yes. Okay. Yeah, or soldering it's, soldering it's not, typically. Correct. Okay. And brazing. Uh, how does brazing differ than soldering? Brazing's in cooking, so. <laughs> <laughs> so in brazing, the filler material is heated ab above its melting point, which is sort of like soldering. But the difference is that it's distributed in between the parts by capillary action. So one can so sort of think it of it as soldering, but in an area where you're allowing the capillary action of concentric tubes to wick that material up. In, into the gap between the two tubes. Ah. Hmm. So maybe it's the uh, plumbing in the industry that has convinced me that soldering is somehow the same when I should be using brazing. Yeah, so so my understanding is the filler material, the temperatures used to melt the, the filler material are higher for brazing, uh, mm -hmm. but that it's a similar process to soldering. Okay. Fancy. Indeed. And so, and so, as we as we proceed down this journey, let me say that I am I am you know in the area of threaded fasteners. This is not my area of expertise. It's not like I am all knowing about fasteners. Uh, we will try to cover what I can. And those listeners who who find something uh, horribly wrong or objectionable, please you know send you know leave a comment, send an email, let us know. We'll do the best we can with what we've got. <laughs> we'll have to have a follow up episode. <laughs> we may we may need to. So the idea is that, that if we, if we need, if we have an assembly that we need to disassemble and reassemble, we probably needed threaded fasteners in order to allow us to do that. And so some common threaded fasteners that, that we talk about, know about are bolts and screws and studs and nuts. There, there are more than those, but we'll limit ourselves to those. And so the, you know, the major first question that people have, well, what's the difference between a bolt and a screw? And besides the tools you need to put them on, actually you use the same tools oftentimes. So, so I guess the, the difference is that typically a bolt needs a nut. Mm -hmm. That would be not the, not the crazy person and not the, uh, not the thing that falls from a tree. 
but usually the hexagonal outlined uh, thing with the thread in the middle that you put on the end of the of the threaded device and uh, tighten that up. So whereas a screw would use uh, threading in the material you're trying to join? Yeah, exactly. Oh. So, okay. so, so a bolt – so the, the, the best thing I uh, came across was somebody said the terms bolt and screw are less about describing physical forms than describing how a physical thing is used. But but typically screws are used with tapped holes and bolts are used with nuts. Hmm. It's one of those things that makes a ton of sense that I just never thought about before. Yeah, and and so the so you may have a device that's called a screw, but it can be used as a bolt, and you may have a thing that's called typically named a bolt, and it can be used as a screw. Uh, it just depends whether you're you're turning this th- threaded device, you know, this fastener into an in an internal thread on a mating part or you're using an external nut in order to tighten things up. Hmm. Now, occasionally screws will be used with nuts too, or no, like machine screws. Absolutely. Sure. So, so there, so in that case, it's really being used as a bolt, right? But, but the nomenclature, we would look at that and we'd go, we don't call that a bolt. Well, it's, it's bolting something (laughs) because it uses the nuts. So, uh, a lot of it's nomenclature, and we we typically tend to think of you know bigger screws, bigger threaded fasteners as being bolts, and the smaller ones as being screws. Mm. Um, so this is one of these areas where uh, a little contextual information helps a lot. Because I'm guessing in the, in the you know if you're doing an electronic assembly or you've got a little contain you know the box that everything goes into, there's no way that you're using. No one would call that a bolt. You don't say bolt the box together. <laughs> You know, you'd go find, say, go find the screw so we can assemble this box. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't think I've ever seen any bolts in a typical enclosure. <laughs> but maybe to hold a, maybe to hold a circuit board down on some standoffs or to the uh, to the box itself, but or to hold big leaded transistors to the through the circuit board. Well, yeah, then yeah, for heat sinks, you typically use bolts. Mm-hmm. Now, sometimes a bolt and a screw will have, you know, they'll they'll make a baby. And, you know, I've seen some that you can use a ratchet or a screwdriver to get off and on. Is there a fancy name for those? They've got, like, the hex head, but they have, like, you know, the Phillips crosshatch carved out there, too. Oh, yeah, sure. So there's there's any variety of, of bolts out there that uh, I don't know what the official name would be for that. Bruise. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I like that one. We'll just stick with it. Beer cast begins now. Boom. <laughs> so uh, when we're picking out a threaded fastener to use, we got to start someplace. And there are really three areas that we really have to to uh, focus on. And, and so it's a matter usually of strength. You know, the size of fastener we need depends on how much strength we need, need in that in that joint, in that in that connection. And so the first thing we have to do is evaluate uh, the assembled components. So usually we're trying to assemble together, you know, clamp together two or three components. And so as Adam was saying, if, you, if you're if you using rivets or some sort of through hole, then you're weakening those structures. And so you may decide you want to weld them together so you don't have that hole in the part. So the first thing you have to do is, you know, however you're combining them, you're not weakening those uh, parts too much that they still have enough meat to do what they need to do. But more specifically is with regard to the, the threaded fastener, there are two pieces 
that you, you one takes a look at. One is the the strength of the fastener itself. That is, uh, there's usually some part of the of the fastener that is not threaded or or is not engaged in the thread. That is not is not engaged with the the internal thread or the nut. So there's some strength with that, and then there's also the strength of the thread itself. So usually those two those two uh, elements are considered separately: the the strength of the threaded and the strength of the unthreaded portions of the fastener. And so when we're we're looking at that. Uh, from a mechanical standpoint, we're usually looking at a couple of elements. One is the tensile load that is axially along the length of the fastener. How hard are we pulling it? And so uh, that's going to be in like pounds per square inch. It's it's equal to the force that we're pulling with divided by the cross-sectional area. We all may also worry about the the elongation, how how much stretch we get in the bolt. How's that different than tensile load? Or does that happen because of tensile load? It happens because of tensile load. So the, t- the tensile load is is like, a, let's say we've bolted together two pieces and then we're hanging a, a thousand pound weight off of off the bottom piece. Mm-hmm. So that without preloading, we'll get into a bit into the preloading of the bolt. But if there's no preload, then we're basically saying that bolt is going to handle that thousand pounds. You know, if we're if we're hanging it from a single bolt. Gotcha. And so you have a You'll have a cross-sectional area. So if you have a a one-inch diameter bolt, the tensile load, or what we'd call stress, is going to be lower than if we had a half-inch bolt, uh, where we'd have a you know a higher stress. Mm-hmm. Okay, sounds like resistance a little bit. Yeah, and so e- each material has a an ability to handle a certain amount of stress. So the the yield strength, what we call the yield strength for steel, is about. Uh, was it like three times higher than aluminum? So that's oftentimes, you know, for, for when we need stronger parts, we use steel instead of aluminum. Even though the aluminum is weighs less, uh, the steel has higher strength. And so, uh, once we, once we've figured out how much tensile load this, this joint can take, we also may have to worry about shear, which is instead of pulling along the length of the axis, we're trying to go across perpendicular to that axis, you know, trying to, try to, you know, Break it, break it in half. And, uh, so we may have to deal with what that shear load is. And so each material also has resistance to shear. And we may also have, have to worry about fatigue. What's the ability of this, uh, bolt to, to reduce, uh, a, a repeated cyclical, uh, bending force back and forth. Like if you take a paper clip and you bend it back and forth and back and forth and back and forth, eventually it's going to fatigue, we would say, and break in half. It's actually a fun way to kill time in meetings. See how small you can get the pieces. <laughs> right. So, so all this is a long way around to go to we, what we want to do with a threaded joint usually is we want to avoid fatigue at all costs. Okay. Which means we want to keep the thing clamped together so tight. There's not enough room for us to wobble this thing back and forth and fatigue it. And we want to keep it clamped so tight together that the pieces really can't shear at all, that, that there's so much friction between the clamp pieces that there's no movement as possible. And hence, we reduce the amount of, of shear that the bolt is seeing. And uh, um, so we do that by trying to make sure that we don't have too many, uh, that we avoid complex loading, that, that to the extent possible, we have just tensile loading on this threaded joint. It's not always possible, but it makes the analysis much easier when it is possible. 
Is there a lot of concern over the cross-sectional area of the mating surfaces, you know, the, the top of the bottom of the uh, bolt and the top of the nut as they come together? Sure. So depending upon the material, the materials that you're mating together. So if you have, let's, let's, for instance, if you're, if the two materials you were mating get together were rubber and, and were very soft, then you couldn't torque it up. You couldn't put much torque on that bolt. Uh, that is, you couldn't preload the bolt much without greatly deforming the rubber pieces, right? So if you have very, if the pieces you're trying to bolt together are very soft, you may, there may be a real limit on how much, uh, how tight you can make that connection. Now, what, what gets done often is if you have this problem, you'll put a washer, a, a plain washer on either side. And the purpose of the plain washer is ex- exactly that, to distribute the load over a greater area. So if you have a very soft material, you may need a very large washer to help distribute the load over, over a large area. Gotcha. Don't washers also help you from uh, you know digging into the material you're screwing into as well? Yes. So that's, that's the other reason. That's one of the other reasons you'd use a plain washer is to keep from marring or deforming the components you're trying to mate together. Mm-hmm. So if we've, uh, if we've not, if we've not failed, I mean, in the design process, if we've gotten the strength of the components, the assembled pieces, okay, we've taken care of that. We, there's enough meat around the holes that we're using to assemble things and the threaded fastener. The unthreaded portion is okay. That is, we've, we've selected a fastener that's big enough, hefty enough that it, it won't fail in, in, in tension and it won't fail in shear and we're, it's not subject to fatigue. We've done all that right. Then we're finally down to the point of worrying about what's, what happens at the threaded connection. And so, now, go ahead. Jeff, in, in machine design, is there a, a strong tendency to try to load bolts in, in tension versus shear? I, mean, I know, when we talked about bolts, we only looked at shear. Um, but I don't know if that's just because of the types of structures we talk about. Is, is there a strong tendency one way or the other? Well, okay. So the, if you have a bolt, it's, it's tensile strength is going to be greater than its shear strength. So mm-hmm. for that reason, if you're able to do so, you would, you would like to load, you would like to keep the, the fastener loaded in tension rather than uh, subject to shear loading. Now there are some cases where you just can't do it. And if you can't do it, you can't do it. And now you have to, uh, make the appropriate calculations for the fact that this, for the fact that this is going to be in shear. But if I'm, but if I'm, if I'm in that position, if I'm going to put something in shear, my tendency is I'm going to put in, at least in my world, I would be putting in dowel pins or something where I, I had a mechanical device that wasn't subject to stress risers. That is, I didn't have this, I didn't have the threads of the, of the bolt being a, an available stress riser for that, that intersection. Um, so I'd be much more likely to be putting in this, if I could, a smooth dowel rod or, or dowel pin in order to take that load. Now, if you're doing a bridge, which is much larger than the type of machines I design, you know, I don't know whether, you know, a rivet or something could be used in a, in a, uh, similar, uh, arrangement. And I, from what I understand, bolts are mostly used due to the ease of installation. Mm-hmm. And it, you don't have to worry about movement. You're hopefully not taking them apart very often. Right. And so you're able to torque them down and, and be done with it. Right. Um, yeah. And I just, it's very, in a lot of those sorts of structures, it's really hard to get an axial load on a, a fastener. You're almost always trying to get into your, and your members are, are fairly large in comparison to the size of the bolt. 
for many bolts, the, the thread does not run the entire length of the shank. So if you've got a bolt, you've got the, the, the big part at the top that you turn on. It's called the head. And then the length of the, of the bolt that may be either unthreaded or threaded is called the shank. Um, some people use the, the term shank just to refer to the unthreaded portion. Although I think formally the entire length is called the shank. So if you had that condition, if you were, if you were putting a stress loading on it, you could arrange for the, the, the plane of the, uh, the I'm sorry, the shear loading, you could arrange for that plane to pass through an unthreaded portion of the bolt, uh, which I think would be preferable to running it through a threaded portion of the bolt. Well, that makes sense. Yeah. So could you also use multiple bolts or screws to take the load or is that kind of a sloppy practice? You'd rather use a rod or. No, that, absolutely. That's, uh, so there are a lot of occasions where you need, you know, if you've got a big assembly that you're, you know, you're trying to hold on to, you know, a big hydraulic cylinder, a, you know, a foot diameter hydraulic cylinder that's going to generate, you know, hundreds of thousands of pounds, you have to, you have to use this bolt pattern that, you know, uh, with a lot of bolts, because otherwise you'd, you know, each single bolt would have to be just humongous and that's not, not cost effective and not very, uh, reasonable, not very practical. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And in, in structures, it's bad practice not to use more than one bolt <laughs> in case one fails. Yeah. Uh, gotcha. You know, it, it, you're talking dozens of bolts usually. Yeah. So, so, I mean, this is one of these places where engineering is more of an art. You have to sort of take a look at it and say, okay, well, you know, how much room do I have? I mean, the, the, the bigger the bolts, the bigger the bolt circle needs to be. The bolt circle being the diameter of the, of the circle that you're putting the bolts into. And how many can I afford? Uh, the more bolts means the more component cost and, and the more machining cost if you're machining holes for each of these bolts, that kind of thing. So it, your option may be to have, you know, 20 quarter 20 bolts or, you know, 16 three eighths bolts or 10 half inch bolts. I don't know, you know, something like that. There's, there's some trade off that, that somebody has to make a uh, cost reward ratio. Mm-hmm. Now, you threw out a term there that I, I think we should define. You, you started talking about the different size bolts, and you said like 1016 or, uh, or sorry, 16 three-eighths or whatever. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I'm bugging yeah. up the terms myself. Um, oh, that's fine. So, yeah. so, so let, me, let me talk about the, the thread. I'll, I'll try to talk about it real briefly because I think everybody knows, you know, at least our listeners who, who are somehow involved in engineering knows what a thread is. You know, it's that it's an that plane wrapped around a column. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I started out all nice and philosophical, <laughs> and it, right? And so that that thread, that raised area that goes around, it can either be internal, which would be the nut part, or it could be external, which would be the bolt or the screw. And we generally talk about it in terms of its lead. Either it's lead or it's pitch. So there's two terms there that mean slightly different things. And so the lead is that helical pattern that goes around the cylinder. It's how far uh, that helical pattern moves for one revolution around the device. And so if you have a, a short lead, you're going to make one turn and not go very far. If you're screwing, you know, turning the screw in, you'd take one re- revolution and not go very far in. If you had a, a big lead, you know, you'd make one revolution, you'd make a lot of, uh, of motion inward. The other one that's closely related is pitch, which is the distance between each of the tops of the, of the thread profiles as you go along. And sometimes you end up with 
screws that have multiple starts. That is, they have multiple helic helical wraps around the, the device. And so if you have a, a two-thread start, then the lead will be, the pitch will be half the lead distance because you've got two of these uh, sets of, of helical patterns going around the same shaft. I get it. That makes sense. So anyway, uh, and and these can go, typic- these, these helical wraps can go be left-handed or right-handed, although most are right-handed, which allows us to have that famous saying, righty-tighty, lefty-loosey. Woohoo. Rules of thumb. <laughs> yeah. But you might want a left-handed thread if, for instance, you've got consistent forces trying to back this threaded uh, connection out. So let's say you're on the left pedal of a bicycle. Oftentimes those are left-hand threads. If you're putting a nut on a saw blade and the saw blade turns in the direction that would tend to loosen the bolt or the connection, often those are left-handed threads. And on some gas fittings uh, where they don't want people messing with things, they will have a left-hand thread so that if somebody who doesn't know what they're doing tries to loosen the thing up, they actually end up tightening up the junction, not loosening it. Mm, smart. So that we can talk about what those – we talked about those numbers, like a, a number, you know, a number 632 uh, machine screw. The We need some terminology. So as we go through the thread, the tops of the threads are called the crest. The bottom of the thread is called the root. And the flats that go from the root to the th- – to the crest are called the flanks. And so normally we can talk about the thread angle, but for, but for most common bolts and screws, that's a 60 degree angle. So basically these are forming little, you know, equilateral, equilateral triangles as they go down the length of the shaft. And, and typically the crest, the top is truncated. That is, it doesn't come to a sharp point because if you brought it to a very sharp point, then it could be easily damaged. You know, if anything that hit it would bend the point just a little bit and create a burr that would make it not so easily assembled. And the root is usually rounded a little bit uh, to keep it from being a a big stress riser uh, that is uh, making it easy to induce uh, cracks into that part of the bolt. Oh, I see. So if it's rounded off, you can't get stress built up in the corners there. Yeah. So, I mean, intuitively, I mean, we, you know, one can go into materials or, or mechanical design and and study these things, but intuitively, you know, that if you take a a rod, let's say even a steel rod and you want to, uh, you want to, you know, break it in half, you can, even though you can't do it at first, if you, if you take a saw and put a little notch in that, then that little notch that you've made from the saw is enough that now you can start to wiggle it back and forth and get the thing to crack. So, any kind of defect in the surface of the material is known as a stress riser, and that's to be avoided if you want if you want to avoid uh, uh, your mechanical parts uh, from failing. Interesting. There's a lot more into screw design than I thought. I figured we'd <laughs> we'd call the quits, you know, hundred years ago or so. <laughs> Just came up with you know different different heads, so you need different screwdrivers. Yeah, it's it's amazingly complex for such a simple thing. Now, most people, most times you don't have to worry about that. You just have to go and say, Hey, do I have the right size screw? And you're done. Uh, but if you do have to worry about all these fatigue and loading issues, then yeah, it gets, it gets fairly complex. I guess that makes sense though. I mean, you know, in the electrical engineering business, you have people whose whole lives are devoted to designing inductors or capacitors, and there's a lot more to them than you think. Yeah. But how often can you just say, okay, I need a, a 10 microfarad, capacitor and be done with it yeah 
Yeah, it's it's pretty much the same thing. Yeah, any 10 mic MLCC will work until it doesn't, and then you get to my job. <laughs> but exactly, like, you know, like Jeff's saying, any screw usually works until it doesn't. <laughs> Yeah. So, so the uh, if we if we take a set of calipers, do you guys know what calipers are? Yes. Mm-hmm. Oh yes. Okay. Good. Okay. So the, yes, the I do you take use those. Of, okay, you, you take those and measure across the. If you have an external thread that is a bolt, and you measure across the the crest, the top of the of the profile, uh, that's what we call the major diameter or the nominal diameter. And so that's when you specify a size. For instance, I say a quarter inch bolt. I'm talking that size across the the outside of the of the threads mm-hmm. or across the crest. And if it's <laughs> if there's an unthreaded shank, will it also be the same diameter there too? Yeah, so they're they can be very close to the size. I mean there are re- there are times and reasons you they may not be exactly the same or or you may at times you may undercut the shank because you want the nut to ride all the way up and you don't want it to be stopped by the interference with the shank. You want it to ride up into the into the uh, parts that you're assembling and sometimes you'll undercut the shank uh, for that reason. So it can, it can be either way, but, but a lot of times, uh, on bolts, on standard bolts, they're very close to being the same. So now we have all the terminology. And so now we can say that to define this helix, if we have the right profile, and we'll talk a minute about the profiles, but if we have the right profile, we agree upon that, then we need two things. We need the, the major diameter. How big is the helix? And we need the pitch. How, how far does the helix move with each turn of the, of the device? And so if I say a, if I request a M10 by 1.5 thread, the M10 indicates it's a metric thread. It's 10 millimeters is the nominal, uh, diameter or major diameter. And 1.5 indicates that the thread, the helix moves 1.5 millimeters with each revolution of the device. So if I were to, if I were to turn it in, with one turn, it would move forward 1.5 millimeters. Uh, for instance, a quarter 20 thread, which is a common English size, that's a quarter inch nominal diameter with 20 threads per inch. Now you note that the metric version is in, is, gives the pitch directly, whereas the English, the English version says how many, gives the reciprocal of the, of the pitch, how many threads per inch. So this is another case where engineering standards have developed over time. Apparently, we've we've paved the cow path. <laughs> <laughs> so in doing electrical assemblies, what guys? What kind of what kind of uh, thread standards did you do you come across? Are they mostly English? Or are they mostly metric? Uh, my first co-op was mostly English, um, but that was just for like enclosures and you know in-house test fixtures. I'm not sure what the actual product used. You know, I've, I've worked on a lot of projects where all the old product were. English, and it seems like pretty much everyone wants to go metric. Mm-hmm. So I saw a lot of both, but it, if, if there were ever clean sheet designs, everything went metric. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I know that's, that's more and more common if you're working on your car. It, it, uh, if you got an American manufactured automobile, it used to be that everything was English. More and more stuff is moving metric. Although for a while, uh, I haven't worked on a new car for a while because I haven't bought a new car, but. Uh, for a while, you'd get a mix. Some things were metric and some sort of parts were English, and that was really confusing. Yeah. I, I haven't used anything but metric on my car so far, although it's only two years old, so knock on wood. <laughs> There's not too much wrong with it yet. Okay. Well, and so so that sort of brings us to the to the bit about standards. So 
within the within the you know parameters of we define a pitch and we just define a nominal size, we could pick anything, right? We could pick point two five three two seven eight nine 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 eight four as our nominal diameter if we wanted to in some oddball pitch. God, I hope your calipers are calibrated. <laughs> yeah. But but there's nothing to say we couldn't do that. So uh, in order for is that what IKEA uses? I, <laughs> I I don't believe so. I don't believe so. But in order to reduce the confusion. Uh, there, uh, various governmental agencies and, and industry bodies have come up with standards. And so, although it's this, what I'm going to present is no, by no means all of them, at least for those of us here in the States, the three biggies, well, actually the two biggies are, there's the American standard for unified screw threads, which is ANSI B1.1-1989. Uh, there's the ISO metric screw threads, which is ISO, which is the International Organization for Standardization, I believe, ISO 68-1. Uh, and there's a British standard for machine screws. Uh, and I don't have an exact number on that. But so you'll, you'll come across references for the American standard, for the ISO standard, and for the British standard. And so without getting too deep into to each one of them, they both, they basically say the same sort of things. And the best news is that if you get metric screws under the American standard, they should be compatible with screws and fittings under the ISO standard. So you can go back and forth between those two metric standards and things should work. So the, the major points that I want to make are for all these standards, they have different, they, so they standardize on thread sizes, that is major diameters, and they also standardize on pitches, how coarse the thread is. A coarse thread being a larger pitch, that is, you go forward more on each turn of the device, or a finer pitch, which means the, the pitch is smaller, uh, you move forward a less amount on each turn of the of the device. And so young designers get constantly frustrated by this. What am I supposed to use, a, a coarse pitch, a fine pitch, an extra fine pitch? And the answer generally, use a coarse pitch unless somebody tells you you shouldn't or that you have a good reason not to. Mm-hmm. And so with if you're do, using the American standard, this will be, uh, identified as UNC for coarse pitch. Uh, if you're using the ISO standard, it will be, uh, yeah, six, it's six G for, for uh, external threads and six H, which is medium fit with no allowance, uh, for the internal threads. So, you know, these are, if you don't specify these things, these come as the typical standards. And for the most part, you know, if you've got the, uh, the nominal size and the pitch specified, and you don't have other reasons to think you need more specifications. Typically, those things will fit together okay. The other note I'll make is that on the American standard, you, you mentioned Carmen, the, like a number six, I think 632. So below a quarter inch, they start using these numbers uh, going from 12 and working their way down. So, you know, it's typical a size below a quarter 20, a standard size is a 1024, and a size below that is an 832. Unless you think that the, the thread, the pitch keeps going up as the thread size goes down. No, it's an 832 and it's also a 632. It's the same pitch for two, two different sizes. Why? I don't know, but that's the way it is. <laughs> that, that's just what they chose. <laughs> that's what they chose. Uh, which, which of course is, well, not of course, but if you know wire gauge, it's opposite to wire gauge, in which case the wire gauge gets smaller. I'm sorry, the wire gauge gets larger as the wire gets smaller, which is opposite. The, how they do bolt sizes, which I never quite could understand. Hmm. So 
I wanted to fully call out a American Standard Unified Thread, I might ask for a three-quarters 10 UNC-2A right hand, or RH, which indicates a three-inch major diameter, 10, inch, 10 threads per inch, coarse threads via UNC, a class two fit with a right hand thread. If I were calling out something for the, for the metric size, I might call out an M8 by 1.25. And typically on the, on the call outs, it'll be M8 and then X as in the multiplying sign 1.25 indicating that's a eight millimeter major diameter by 1.25 millimeter pitch. Very cool. Now at least you know what those numbers mean. Yes, and I feel like we also have to address another very important question here before we get too Mm -hmm. far deep. Sure. We talked about the difference between screws and bolts, and, you know, screws typically have, you know, your your bolts are just for plain holes. Screws have threads in the holes. How do you get the threads in the holes? How do you get the threads into the holes? Yeah, how do you you thread the hole? (laughs) Okay. Uh, well, so, you know, the 10,000 foot view here, I'm sure that's a whole nother podcast in itself. Yeah. So the, on the external threads, the threads are typically either rolled or machined. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, you know, one can envision on a lathe or CNC machine, you can use a a single point tool and go in there and, and cut away the material you don't want to create the thread. And so that's very doable. The downside is it tends to produce more stress risers. The the points tend to be a little sharper. So the other way to do it is rolling the threads. And so now you need a machine that's specially designed for uh, coming down uh, and rolling those. Basically, there's a, a rolling operation where it, it deforms the metal in that area and rolls the threads onto the onto the shank. So that's the external threads. If you're doing internal threads, uh, I, actually, I don't know how they manufacture the nuts this way. If I'm doing in a, a component, I'm putting a thread in a part. That's almost always done by drilling and tapping. So mm-hmm. you, you, wherever you want the hole first, you drill a hole through of a certain size. And again, you can find that certain size in the machinery handbook. <laughs> and then you go through and you take a tap, which is a, a shank that looks similar to a, a, a screw itself, except it has, uh, it's very hardened metal and it has sharp edges. And it goes down, and by turning it in at a certain rate, uh, it starts itself in and creates the the thread pattern at the proper of the proper size and pitch. Interesting. And you said that you have to screw it in at a certain rate. Does that give you more threads per inch or something? You are, right. So if you uh, so you have to if you're doing a CNC machine, you have to do that. So if you if you're tapping by hand, you basically have the right size tap. You know, you threaded it. You basically make it a few turns and then back it out. And, mm-hmm. and get rid of the the uh, the shavings, the the chips in there, and go back in. So basically, you go in and back out, and go in and back out, that kind of thing, and, and you do it by hand. If you're doing it with a machine, then you have to make sure that the rate at which you're driving it forward is the same rate, at, you know, is a, is aligned with the rate that you're turning, mm-hmm. right? So typically, a CNC machine will have what they call a tapping head that has a, is kind of spring loaded, uh, so that allows all the torque to be delivered to the um, to the tap, but it has some give. So if there's a slight misalignment between the rate at which you're driving the thing forward and the rate at which you're turning it to create the threads, then this source allows some axial movement so that you don't, uh, you don't, uh, cause the, the drive motors of the CNC machine to fault out, uh, due to hmm. over torquing. Hmm. Interesting. 
It's it's always very easy to do by hand. All you need is about four taps per hole. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That that uh I've talked about it before on the podcast. That was one of my early adventures with an internship was uh was tapping holes in the side of uh, uh Bridgeport milling machines. And you'd occasionally find the uh, ball bearing buried somewhere in the pot metal on the side of that thing. <laughs> Crack that off. That was always a joy. <laughs> so do you typically thread for a screw? Do you thread the entire hole or do you typically do, say, like two-thirds and then call it a day? Or are you just wasting screw at that point then? So it depends on what you're trying to do. Uh so there's so there's several issues here. One is one is just clearance. You have to make sure you've got enough clearance so everything assembles. And the other is you have to make sure you've got enough thread engagement to do what you want to do. Oh, to properly hold the screw in place. To properly hold the screw in place, because if you go back, remember our, our you know we talked about you have the 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 components have to be big enough, the bolt has to be big enough, and now the threaded junction has to be sufficiently sized. And so we need sufficient thread engagement so that you don't strip out the threads. Mm-hmm. Because basically what you're doing is if you're putting this under tensile load, the, you're putting the bolt under tensile load, you're putting each of those threads in shear. You know, the threads are sort of connected together, and yeah. you're trying to shear across those threads. So the typical uh, recommendation is that if you're putting this into steel, you have steel components – that you want at least one time the nominal diameter. So if you've got a, a uh, let's say a 10 millimeter thread, you want at least 10 millimeters of engagement uh, to keep from pulling those threads out. Mm-hmm. If you're dealing with, say, cast iron or brass or bronze, then you want about one and a half times the nominal diameter. If you're dealing with a softer material like aluminum or zinc, you want two times the nominal diameter. So that's the first issue, uh, and so it may you may have a, a component. Let's say I've got a I've got a, a one a one eighth inch plate. Well, let me see see if do better for our, our international listeners. I've got a uh, I've got a six millimeter plate. This is very considerate of you. I don't do it. Let's see whether I can actually think at this hour. If no math on air is the golden <laughs> rule, but sure, let's go for it. <laughs> so if I have if I have a six six millimeter steel plate, but I've got a, a 10 millimeter bolt, then I've got problems. You know, the, the plate, the sheet, you know, the six millimeter sheet isn't thick enough. So I may need to weld some additional material onto the back of it or do something else to create at least 10 millimeters of thickness to thread through to get proper engagement with my 10 millimeter bolt. Or I've got to decide that 10 millimeters is too big and I've got to back off to a six millimeter bolt to go to match up with my six millimeter steel sheet. Now, is that based on what you calculate as a design size for your bolt? And if you upsize it just to say use a, oh, well, I've only need one of these six millimeter bolts, but I've got like 12 10 millimeter bolts in my design. I'm just going to use a 10 here. Can you get away with the six then? Or do you really still need the 10? Well, so, yeah. So you still have to make sure that your, your, the tensile load in your bolt you know, matches whatever your design situation is. So you've got two situations. First is you've got to design the bolt to match the loading that you've got in the situation. The second is now you've got to have sufficient threaded engagement to match with the size of the bolt. Okay. In my example, with a six millimeter sheet, if if you needed a ten millimeter bolt, and you then you you'd have to find some way to to you know, get more, more threaded engagement, either weld a piece to the back of the six millimeter sheet or do something to give yourself sufficient engagement 
if the 10 millimeter was too big, I mean, you, you had enough room, you had some, some, uh, some slop in your calculations, you had a little extra and you didn't really need something that big, then you could back off to the six millimeter bolt to match your six millimeter thickness. Okay. So that being said, back to Carmen's question about, well, what do you, you know, what do you do? You may, you can either have a through hole in which you may thread the entire length, or let's say you have a, a very big, a, say you've got a 60 millimeter com, uh, component. Do you need to drill and tap all the way through that? No, you can drill and tap a blind hole where you may drill down, say, 10 millimeters or 12 millimeters, something like that, and then only tap down the six to eight millimeters you need to engage that six millimeter bolt. And obviously you don't want to do, drill too deep because then you're ruining the strength of your material, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. so, yeah, so, uh, uh, there are a lot of cases where strength is not a big issue, and so it doesn't matter too much how far you drill. Uh, obviously, if it is a big issue, then yeah, you have to be very careful about how far you drill, and and making sure if if that becomes an issue, you also have to worry about you know making sure that the manner in which you 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 drill and tap it isn't creating any stress risers in that area of the part. So would that be why you'd go with the bolt instead then, because it has less of a chance of creating stress risers. It's easier to machine in. You just drill the hole. Yeah, well, so so that's the advantage of using a bolt is instead of having to drill and tap, you just drill a through hole, mm-hmm. and 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 so you let the the nut on the far side take care of all this you know threaded engagement bit. Gotcha. So sometimes you can't. The reason you would do an internal thread in a lot of cases is you just can't afford the room. You know the the extra room needed for the bolt you don't. Ha- or I'm sorry for the nut you don't have, um, and so you you choose to do an internal thread. Plus, plus it's one less component. Yeah, something else to not fall in the cracks of your workshop. Right. All right. So I guess moving on, we're working our way up the screw. Uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> how, how the heck do you get these things down? I mean, you know, there's, there's a whole toolbox worth of stuff there. You know, you got your, your Phillips head, your flathead. Or, yeah, Phillips head, flathead. Almost lost my engineering credit there. And then there's, there's all sorts of ratchets. Why would you want one over another? Well... A convention, I think, is a lot of it. Like a, we all have the flatheads, or yeah, the the slotted screwdriver, or mm-hmm. the flat screwdriver. But those are those are hard to drive quickly. I mean, if you yeah. you know if you, if you you're trying to put in you know an outlet on your wall socket, or your power socket, or something, that's not too bad. But if you're trying to do assemble uh, assemble things quickly, then that screwdriver tends to move side to side in the slot, and so I don't know if I'm doing a small assembly, I'm not too worried about it, but if I'm doing something that has to be assembled quickly, I tend to try to use either a, mm-hmm. a Phillips head or a socket drive where I'm actually putting a hex head socket on the outside and driving the driving the bolt down with that. So that's another area of selection and there's a lot of choices you can make. So if if you know you need a, a threaded fastener, you have your choices and, and these are each specified by the respective standards. You can use, you know, a square bolt, which has a square head at the top. You can use a hex head bolt. And within that, there may, you may see them as hex bolts, hex heavy bolts, uh, hex heavy structural bolts. Uh, the hex heavy is a slightly bigger head if you need to apply greater torque or you need a more rugged, uh, uh connection. And then within sort of the world of what we typically called screws, you've got flathead screws. Which are has a countersunk head. Now, uh, are you, you guys familiar with countersunk versus counterbore? No. <laughs> okay. I've heard these words, but I probably got them mixed up. So you can enlighten me. 
Okay, so a countersink is basically it's a conical divot. Mm-hmm. So it's it's you sort of th- I, so I, in my mind countersink it's like a sink it drains to the bottom you know to the center. So so you you basically if you took a if you took the sort of angled part of a drill bit and put put it down into the into a part you would sort of create a a countersink there. You know, mm-hmm. you created a divot that was sort of conical in, in shape. So that's a countersink. A counterbore is where you take a, a, you know, typically you're taking a, either a, a counterboring tool or you can take an end mill that's flat on the bottom and you drill down into the part. And now you create a cylinder, a cylindrical hole that has a flat bottom. So that's a counterbore. Yeah, okay. So if you have a screw that's a flathead screw, the the driving mechanism could be, it could be a slot for a screwdriver. It could be a X, you know, for a Phillips head screwdriver. It could be a, a socket that is, a, it has a, a hex shaped hole in it, which you put an Allen wrench down in there and turn it. It could be a, a Torx wrench, which kind of has the star pattern. You could use that. It could be a square drive. So there's any number of drives that you could use to turn the thing, but a flathead screwdriver will be a countersunk head. Uh, that has a flat top. So the top will be flat and the underside of the head will be angled uh, to go into the divot of a countersink that you've created in the mating part. Interesting. Flatheads also offer the option of uh, being pretty easy to access. You can improvise a screwdriver pretty easily if you had to. So, what do you mean by improvise a screwdriver? Well, for a flathead, like you can use a quarter or, you know, a butter knife or... <laughs> well, okay, so, so... You know, whatever Right, but that only works if you uh, have an a, old piece of cheese. Mm-hmm. That only works if you have a ca- if you have a slotted flathead screw. Yes. Okay, but if you but if you had one with say a, a Phillips head drive or a socket drive, then you couldn't use a coin to to True. drive that down. True. Yeah. Sorry, okay. I'm I'm going flathead with screwdriver types here. That's yeah. Okay. That's, that, that's my mixing up the uh, the terminology. I've always called the slotted screwdrivers flatheads. Okay. That. That, we'll just blame that on my dad. That's a bad habit. <laughs> okay. Uh, so you could you might also have an oval head where it's like a flat head except it's slightly rounded, mm-hmm. you know, kind of uh, partially rounded. You may have a pan head screw. And a pan head screw has a flat bottom, but a kind of a a kind of a rounded top. And that's these are real common for electronic parts. You know, I see this a lot in an electronic assembly. They'll use a pan head screw. You can get a round head screw, which has a full which has the full diameter radius on top. And these are typically, the round heads are typically, they often have a, a slot in it. And the reason they go with the, these are slotted is because you've got the full radius of the rounded, which gives you more area for the screwdriver to hit against. And so it's easy to hmm. turn the, to apply more torque. You get the hex washer head where it's a hex head, but they include a washer, a slotted hex washer where it's, it has the built-in washer in the slot. Um, and then uh, a whole range of socket cap screws. And so a socket head a cap screw are those that have a, the head is a cylinder instead of being like a hex on the outside. It's round. It's got a cylinder and it's got the socket inside for the drive. So these are the type that you would use an Allen wrench on uh, to turn those. And likewise, you could also use the Torx drive or square drive, but typically the socket cap screws use the, the hex uh, socket drives. Mm-hmm. For any listeners who are thoroughly confused, we will have all sorts of charts and lists and everything in these show notes, so you can you can brush up on your types of screws. Because uh, <laughs> I looked yeah, them over so, beforehand, and I'm still confused. 
All right. Well, well so, so uh, I'll, I'll just finish. the. In addition to that, you can have button head screws, which are like socket cap screws, but it's a rounded profile at the top that has a socket drive. Or you can have set screws, which have no head, but still the socket drive. And those are used a lot of time to secure gears to shafts, mm-hmm. uh, that type of thing. So, so if I, now that I've, I've confused you, what, what areas of con- episode? <laughs> yeah. What, what area of confusion can I back up to and try to explain? Mm, so yeah, I think it was all pretty straightforward to begin with. <laughs> um, do you pick, uh, you know, what kind of fastener you need to based on how you're assembling it? Um, I know we kind of touched on this, but like, if you know, you're using a certain machine and you say have a Phillips head, it, does it does it cam out easier? So you'd maybe want to go with a square drive or something. So it depends on your tooling. I mean, if you're in a if you're in a plant, you may have standard tooling that you're going to use, and so that will that will de- uh, drive your decision. Mm-hmm. It depends on how much torque you're trying to apply. So if I'm trying to apply a lot of torque to a bolt, I don't want a sl- slotted head or a Phillips head. I, I just can't put that much torque. I'd much rather have a hex head where I can I can really get a lot of torque on. In fact, if I'm going to apply a lot of torque, I want a hex head as opposed to, a, say, a, a socket cap where the socket cap, you know, allows me to put in the Allen wrench. But the problem is that Allen wrench isn't very its, – its diameter is not very big. Mm-hmm. So my ability to put a lot of torque on that is limited, whereas if I have a big hex head, I can put a big wrench on that and I can put a lot of torque on that bolt. Yeah. Well, um, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say to throw more complication in there. There's also a whole string of uh, tamper-resistant types of of fasteners <laughs> with uh, like pentagonal heads and uh, pins in the middle of the Phillips heads and things like that. Yes, there are. <laughs> and use those when you don't want somebody when you don't want somebody to take it apart. Yeah, but you know where I see that the most often on the inside of uh, bathroom stall doors. Yeah, yeah, I was thinking that exactly. I don't know who was <laughs> taking those apart when they first came out with those dividers. <laughs> that it became a standard to use funky screws. Uh, apparently, people had uh, had coins in their pocket or board and decided they were going to back out of screws. <laughs> I don't know. Oh, uh, I guess I could see that. You're drunk. You're at the bar. Payphones are still a thing. So, <laughs> yeah, when you're done writing right. your poetry, yeah, you, un- you undo a screw or something. That works. Right. So, uh, Carmen, to your question, though, about where, you know, how you make these decisions, one of the common decisions is, for instance, if you're, if I, if I need to just quickly do a connection, I'll use a, a bolt, you know, put one, drill one hole, set a hole through it, put the hole through, put the nut on the other side, but it, it takes up more room. Mm-hmm. So, a lot of machines where I'm either room sp- uh, constrained, space constrained, or I don't want some sort of, X, you know, bolt sticking out that some, but some an operator could catch their hand against, or another machine, you know, could could catch something against. Then I'll use a cap screw, which are those cylinder, you know, those uh, cylindrical heads, and then I can counterbore the surface that I'm putting them into, and so they drop down into that surface, and now the top of the cap screw is flush with the top of the surface, and so much less likely that somebody's going to uh, catch it, you know, with a sleeve or a ring or you know something like that. Mm-hmm. But the cost of that is now I have more machining. I have to, instead of just drilling through the pieces, I have to drill and tap the hole for the screw part. And I also have to counterbore the head or counterbore the part to give some room for that cap head to drop into. Is it typically a design decision where, you know, if you're going to do it, you may as well just do it. There's not a big difference between, say, you know, the first cap screw and counterbore as there is between doing, say, 50 screws. 
Yeah. So, I mean, obviously, if you're doing one counterboard screw or, or, or fitting, you know, or, or point, if you're doing, sorry, if you're doing one counterbore, you might as well do all of them that way. And there are tools that are, you know, so you can do the drill, you can do the drill and the counterbore. If you have the right tool, you can do the drill and the counterbore at the same time and then come back and just do the tapping as the final operation. Mm-hmm. So there are ways to speed that up. But right. it is kind of a application specific decision. Yeah, you would want to change tools on your uh, your machine just for you know three or four screws if right. you can avoid it. Yeah, you for the most part I try to stick with the same fitting all the way through. So obviously you can't do it everywhere all the time. But if I've got you know I've got a lot of uh, ten twenty four screws, then I try to make as as many as I can fit ten twenty four. So the guy who's machining the the or, or is doing the machining can use the same tap throughout, or the guy who's building the thing doesn't have to go worry about mixing up the, the bolts or, or screw sizes as he's putting the thing together. Very considerate of you. Similar to PCB <laughs> design where, you know, <laughs> unless you have a really big need, you know, you use kind of like a standard 0603 or 0805 component size until, yeah. until proven otherwise. Yeah. Whereas, yeah, I mean, if you, yeah, have an area where, you, oh, I need a, a 10 millimeter bolt here just because there's a little bit more, you know, stress I'm putting it under tension. Yeah, well, I'm using six everywhere else. Maybe we'll just double up the sixes. It's similar for resistors. You're not going to have all 603s or all 0402s and then throw in one big 805. You'll drive <laughs> your bomb keeper crazy and, you know, that just looks weird on the PCB. You get asked a lot of questions about it. Yeah. Yeah, so drives up your pick and place costs. Exactly. So, see, we bring this back to electronics. Yeah, yeah, you got to ground it out for you know everybody else, or at least round it out and make analogies. It's called being a host. That was that was not an analogy. That was an outright lesson in bomb management. <laughs> That's true. All right, now you're being pedantic as we talk well, about types of screws. <laughs> but bomb management applies to more than just electronics. Exactly, it applies yeah. to mechanical and uh, even civil to a degree, mm-hmm. and software. <laughs> I mean, how, how many extra uh, yeah. bridges have you put up just because the cost is already, you know, the, the bulldozer is already there. We already have the crane for the day. Let's just build the second bridge. Exactly. <laughs> it, it's not on that scale. It's That's like saying, well, you, you've already got the, uh, the pick-and-place machine. Why not make a different board? <laughs> uh, that was just another crack. You know, it's one of the common themes that run through our show, so. Yeah, yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Target the civil engineers. <laughs> you going with the old joke there too? Oh yeah, of course. Awesome. <laughs> so the uh, to avoid uh, running on all evening, I'll, I'll just sort of finish up with the this note about preload, and that is if if we're dealing with just connecting two things together, you've got some sheet metal you're trying to put to the side of a panel, or you've got electric you know connection you're trying to attach a, a board uh, to the rest of the assembly, then you know, this whole bit about yield strength and preload isn't a big deal. You just, t- you know, you can hand tight is good enough to keep the thing from falling off. But if you're de- dealing with things that have a lot of load, a lot of stress, then you want to preload this bolt. That is, the bolt actually acts like a big spring. You know, if loaded enough, it starts to stretch. And the pieces you're clamping together, they start to compress. Uh, and so the idea is that you want to, you want to preload this bolt so that if some external force tries to separate the two pieces that you have clamped, you've, you've tightened it so tight that it, uh, its clamping force surpasses the separation force by this external, um, 
I don't know, input, whatever it is. Yeah, disturbance. <laughs> disturbance, shall we say. And yeah. so so the typical rule of thumb is you want to preload to about 50 to 80% of the yield strength of the bolt. And so that that'll, that gets you tight enough that you're avoiding separation of the plates. And remember, we want to avoid separation of the plates because of the if the two things were clamping together, if they separate, then we're open to fatigue and bending and all the kind of things we don't want. We want only axial loading. So we want to keep that uh, tightened up. And so preloading uh, to this this uh, this period of the yield strength, this 50 to 80 percent is tight enough to keep separation, uh, but not so tight that we risk going in, you know, exceeding the yield strength of the bolt and having the bolt break. So that's the uh, like the torque specs you see on something like tightened to 50 foot pounds or something. Exactly. So when somebody has specified a torque uh, rating, that's what they've done. They've decided okay. how much torque you need to apply to preload the bolt to be in the proper range for operation of the um, assembly. Mm hmm. And then uh, I'm assuming does that does that follow your uh, rule of pi too? Where there's a bit of wiggle room, so you're like, well, in case they're not actually using a calibrated uh, torque wrench. It, it, well, it's not the rule of pi, but it certainly is a rule of. Is it, you've, there's you've, a fudge factor in there. Yeah, you've you've, you've got to try because look the uh, the materials could be different from lot to lot. The materials could be slightly different. Conditions you assemble them under could be different. Conditions uh, people can use. Uh, People sometimes use thread lubricants in order to reduce the friction. They may use a, a washer for no other purpose than to reduce the friction of turning. So when you torque up a bolt, so what happens, let me go back. So when you torque up a bolt, you basically go through several processes. One is you put the bolt in, you start to turn it, and it turns freely, right? It's just sort of rattling in there for a while. Mm -hmm. And then you finally get it rattled in most of the way so it starts – to point where the, the head of the bolt's coming up against one of the surfaces. And at this point, it starts, starts to sort of align, you know, straighten itself up, and the, the threads are becoming tight, and you're getting micro deflections at each of the threads. You know, whichever thread, you know, interferes first, that one that one deflects first or, or deforms first. That's the word I'm looking for. And you tighten it up more. And so once you, once you tighten it up a little bit, you know, you kind of get it like finger tight, then you're in a region of a, a la what we'd call elastic clamping. You know, the for each amount of rotational turn you put on that bolt, you're getting an equal amount of preload, and mm -hmm. you you crank it up in the point. But you if you go too far, then eventually you get back into the yield portion. That is the same way that that bending paperclip eventually started to yield and lost strength or even broke in half. You can do that with a bolt if you tighten it up too much. Gotcha. But while you're doing that, okay. So where does all that torque go? Well, the the torque between the head and the part that underhead friction can be 50% of the torque. Hmm. So a lot of that torque is spent on the friction of turning the head against that the, the mating part or that that the initial clamp part. Thread friction can be another 40%. So when you're all done, about 90%, only 10% of your initial torque is actually going towards clamping the part. Okay? But you can imagine that given these factors, you know, friction is sort of a hard thing to judge depending on conditions. Uh, so now you're dealing with head friction being 50%, thread friction being 40%. You're dealing with a lot of things that could vary. And, and so that's why torque is often given in a range. They tell you to torque the, the part down to something between, you know, 10 and 20 Newton meters because there, you know, there's a lot of variables in, in that connection. Mm hmm. I see. Well, that makes sense. So, so a long way of saying it all depends. 
You know, you, you can do all the analysis you want, but in the end, a lot of times you've got to go out to the shop and, and you know, do a hundred trials and see what works. Mm-hmm. Well, and then torque wrenches aren't in good shape or aren't always calibrated properly. And, uh, I mean, there's also a method of torquing called uh, turn of the nut method, which is defined as, a, I think it's a quarter turn after turning to the full force of an iron worker at the end of a wrench. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Very scientific measurements there. <laughs> right. <laughs> Um, How many hogs had per furlong is that? Woohoo. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, I think at this point we've probably thoroughly confused our listeners who are not machine designists. Uh, maybe have given them a new book to ask for for Christmas and uh, some <laughs> handy charts to print off and decorate their cubicle. <laughs> to make them feel better, we completely skip topics like fastener coatings and uh, different grades of bolts. Mm-hmm. And the fact different uh, organizations have their own grades of bolts that well, I mean, are somewhat we, similar but confusing. we got to leave them wanting more for part two. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I think the comments are going to be, please, dear Lord, no more part two. <laughs> yeah, whatever. It's fun. I learned a bunch of stuff. I'm happy. Now, now I figure out why some of the stuff I put together breaks because I'm over-tightening things. <laughs> Hand-tightening for a reason. Yeah. I will throw in one that I learned from my dad early on when I first learned to drive. He said, if you're going to learn how to drive, you know, I have to change a tire. And mm-hmm. uh, he taught me that, that the proper way to tighten the tire was if you had the, the bolts, you started on, you know, one bolt and then you didn't tighten the bolt next to it. You went in the star pattern. Well, you went 180 degrees across. You tightened on the other side. Yeah. And then you came down to the next and you did 180 degrees across and you basically worked your way around and you didn't tighten, tighten them all up at once. You slowly worked your way around through this pattern, tightening them up a little at a time so you had an even compression mm-hmm. uh, and tightness. And that is exactly what, in a lot of mechanical machine parts, that's the way you want to tighten things up. Because if you try to tighten up one bolt at a time, you cause deformation of a of the components in one area, which makes it impossible to really get a, a good tight seal one part against the other in the, you know, on the opposite side of the part. Yes, yes, I've noticed that too. I'm sure there's all sorts of technical terms for it, but I was just like, ah, I put the screws in wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, was it, uh, sometimes you need the, uh, the, uh, persuader. There's the word. Yeah. Yes. That's why I bought the nice rubber mallet when I put together my <laughs> IKEA furniture. It comes in so <laughs> handy. <laughs> all right. Well, so any, uh, any, um, final questions? Any summarizing ideas that you, you, uh, gentlemen have? I are you gonna buy the machinist's handbook for the uh, engineering commons gift exchange? <laughs> Stocking stuff it, <laughs> and we'll know if we're good or bad if it's twenty ninth see through edition or the twenty fourth readable edition. Yeah, well, I think the twenty ninth edition is supposed to be better. Oh, you did say that. All right, the twenty seventh edition. Yeah, the uh, some of the inter- intermediate editions seem to have, be it's, the it's ones just with stapled the problem. transparencies from old overhead machines. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And and uh, once again, I'm I'm not a threaded uh, fastener expert, and uh, so if I've misstated something, uh, please feel free to let me know, or if I've made a a complete uh, uh, you know mistake, let me know. I'm I'm not proud. I'm be happy to uh, update everybody on our next podcast and let them know where I went wrong. You can just say we threw you off your groove. <laughs> Wait. It's your, it's your co-host's fault. <laughs> well, it was definitely not your fault. It, I had to reference a few uh, 
a few old textbooks getting ready for this, so I, I may have forgotten a few things over the intervening years. Mm-hmm. We'll edit out that section where you said uh, screws in the southern hemisphere turn the other way. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> well, yeah, it's because of the Coriolis effect. I'm sure everybody knows that. Yeah, we we only we only like our listeners in the northern hemisphere, though. No, that's not at all true. That, that's a good point. <laughs> we'll take any and all listeners. So ready, tidy, lefty, loosey, where applicable. Right above the equator. Where applicable? <laughs> yes, northern hemisphere only. Yeah, above the equator. <laughs> So now the good news for our listeners is that for the next several episodes, we have guests scheduled. Oh yeah. So in, in, in case you, you are saying to yourself, oh, my goodness, I hope they don't do another one of these uh, educational episodes. Hmm. We have some. Well, we're we have, picking ductors next. <laughs> we, 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 you know, we've got some, uh, some guests lined up and uh, to talk about some interesting subjects. All right. Wonderful. Well, then I will talk to you guys next week uh, during our bi-weekly planning session. Fantastic. Well, we will uh, we'll sign off for this episode then and uh, welcome our listeners back in two weeks when we put out another episode of the Engineering Commons. Giddy up. Sounds amazing. Yeah. Take care, guys. See you later. Bye. The Engineering Commons is produced in affiliation with Big Beacon, a social movement for transforming engineering education, located on the web at bigbeacon.org. For more information about the podcast you've just heard, please visit theengineeringcommons.com. Our theme music is by Paul Stevenson. 